You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, when there's no more room in hell, the Jeff shall walk the earth. It's Jeff McLaughlin. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Good. I'm fine, thank you. Oh, good. Good to know. Fine is good. Yeah. So what's going on? What are you doing? What are your What's your current obsession? I don't have a current obsession, but I, I did find myself going back and watching my way through the Amazon Prime produced two series of The Tick based oh, wow. on something I'd heard somewhere. I don't know. Somebody else was referencing it. I'm like, oh, you know, and I never really finished the se- second season of that. I should go back and watch it again. And then I realized I don't remember what the hell happened in the first season, so I might as well watch the whole thing. And what struck me was the number of people that are involved in the Amazon Prime series uh-huh. tied themselves kind of back into both the short-lived Fox TV series yep. and ultimately with the Fox Kids cartoon that was on in like the 1990s. Yeah, that's um, probably the one I saw the most of. Yep. I used to watch the cartoon because it came on after The Amazing Spider-Man and it was right. great. Yes, it, it was, was It was very funny, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And the TV show was okay. I remember watching it when it was on. I don't think I've seen it since. I've watched it numerous times and it's it gets funnier every time I watch it. Um, okay. One of the things that I, I found myself appreciating in the Amazon Prime version of The Tick was the attention to detail uh, in the way that they sort of referenced some of the little teeny tiny things that are in the other iterations of the TV program. So I'm sure you remember the very beginning of the Tick cartoon was Arthur's alarm going off, right? Yes. And it made a very specific sound. It was like, eh, 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 and then it went, and that would start the music for the Tick. Right. Right. As I'm watching the Tick on Amazon Prime, Arthur's alarm goes off, I think, in like the third episode. And it, when he reaches over to turn it off, it's that's the sound, the same number of beeps and everything oh, as really? the cartoon show. Yeah. And I was like, hey, that's for the cartoon show. That was great. I went back and looked through like the writer's credits and stuff. And Ben Edlund, who'd created the Tick car- comic book and ultimately wrote a bunch of the episodes of the cartoon and almost all the episodes of the other live action show, was doing writing and directing for this series, too. And oh, then wow. the producers of like the other live action show, Barry Sonnenfeld was a producer on this one. And Patrick Warburton, who was the tick in the live action one, was a producer in this one. And it was really neat to see the way that they had gone back and pulled out little elements from the previous iterations of the show in a way that didn't call super amounts of attention to them right. and just sort of left them there. I thought that was really nice. It wasn't like the Star Wars lip service that's like just like, here it is, right in your face. You like that. You right. like that. Oh, um, it's a lightsaber. Woo. Back in the 90s, whenever the cartoon was on, uh, our mutual friend Jim owned a comic book store. And I remember I was watching The Tick one Saturday morning, and there was a specific line. And I immediately called up Jim at the store. And I was like, hey, the guy that writes The Tick, is he from Boston? He goes, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, why? I go, because on the cartoon, they just said, wow, your dad must be wicked slick. 
And just that phraseology, <laughs> wicked slick, yeah. that is yeah, so, slick. yeah, that's such a Boston thing to that say. Is, that is very much a, a Boston expression right there. Yeah, and uh, one of my brother's friends actually was like a dorm mate with the guy that created the tick. You said his name earlier. Yeah, Ben Edlund. Yeah, my, my brother's friend was a dorm mate in college with him. Oh, yeah, and he actually yeah. has like loose leaf notebook paper with like original sketches of the tick. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. It came out of that weird New Englander independent comic scene from like the late 1980s, early 1990s with Tick and then the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a couple of others that had sort of come around. I think Kevin Eastman, who did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, was also local to Boston. So I remember watching a Gallagher. Remember the comedian Gallagher? Yeah. He used to do like a New Year's Eve special on Showtime. And I remember him holding up a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic book. This is like... First run. He goes, guys, buy yourself some of these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic books. These things are going to be worth, you know, thousands someday or whatever he said. Always stuck with me that that franchise actually did make it very huge, very fast. Yep. All right. Well, suck on this. Here's my uh, trivia question for the week. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Before we get the show started. Yep. All right. HBO has tons and tons and tons of original programming that has really, really been successful over the years. Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, etc., etc., etc. Now, what was the first HBO original scripted series? Can I ask for a clarification? Yes. There was a time where they bought some stuff off of, like, Canadian TV. Right. You don't mean that, right? You mean something that they paid to produce themselves. All right, right. let's use a clarification. Yeah, The Hitchhiker doesn't count because that was a Canadian... Canadian TV. Well, it's the same with not necessarily the news, right? That was also scripted TV, but that was bought from CBC Broadcasting. Right. Uh, and then okay. and then they used to have like the other stuff like uh, on Broadway and on location and standing room only. Right. Those don't count because right, they right, weren't right. they no, weren't no, no. Ori- original scripted. I'm they talking were. about an original scripted original scripted television program. Yes, on HBO. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, at the end of the show, I'm going to fail miserably, but we'll get there. Oh, let's come on. No. Keep that shit up. You're shooting for four in a row. <laughs> All right. But this is the week beginning September the 13th, and my extensive record-keeping shows me that it is your turn to start. September 13th, 1922 is the beginning of what is called the Straw Hat Riots, <laughs> and they begin in New York City. I'm not sure. We've done this show for a long year and a quarter, year and a half now, and hats tend to feature in a lot of riots. <laughs> Just going to put that out there. It's so a, there's Yeah, if it's not hats, it's 10-cent beer, yeah. Well, I think of this at Tencent Beer Night. That riot really started when someone ran out and stole the right fielder's hat. Oh, jeez, yeah. It's it's a hat thing. So anyway, the Straw Hat Riots begin in 1922. Don't forget the, the great top hat controversy, too. Exactly. It caused women to swoon a and se- children to cry. A sensation. The guy who invented the top hat got arrested for causing a public nuisance by wearing his hat outside. Right. Well, the Straw Hat Riots, is. there's two ways you can look at this. One is you can look at it like friggin' teenagers <laughs> start all kinds of trouble. And the other way you can look at it is don't pull the hat off a dock worker, you stupid teenagers, because you're going to get wailed on. Now, now, yeah, let me ask. This this Straw Hat Riot, this isn't like the Zoot Suit Riots, is it? No, it's a little different because there's no like racial component to this one that I can find. Right, well, the, and, and, the Zoot Suit Riots, real briefly, whenever all the guys were off to war, the people that weren't off to war were all the like you know the during the swinging era and all that and they all wore their zoot suits and all that and they would pick up all the ladies whose husbands were off to war so when the sailors came back to dock they would be beating the shit out of these guys in the zoot suits that's how the fight started yeah part of the the storyline to the movie 1941 yes wanna... and the song zoot yes. suit riots by the cherry papa daddies 
But moving on, yes. Straw Hats, I'm going to guess it didn't have the same, yes. the same feel to it. It did not. So it used to be fashion that after Labor Day, you wouldn't wear a straw hat in public anymore. They're summer hats. But they were super popular for like 10 years. Okay. So people started wearing them after Labor Day. As we both know, September 13th is after Labor Day. Yes. So as people are walking around and leaving work with their straw hats on, some bored, TV-less, shiftless teenagers start ripping hats off people and stomping on them in the street. And again, because they're straw, you can stomp them into Oblivion. straw. Yeah, yeah. This is a great plan. <laughs> until they pull the hats off a bunch of dock workers. And if you know anything about dock workers, dock workers tend to be very, very strong. And the dock workers decided they didn't want their straw hats stomped on, so they turned around and they beat the hell out of a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> so this spreads. And soon, roving gangs apparently are ro- walking around New York City with baseball bats and boards with nails through them and hitting people who have straw hats on and stealing their hats and smashing them all up. <laughs> and this goes on for days. And it gets bigger and bigger until the police have to crack down and arrest a ton of these people for, like, bitching up each other's hats. You know, I mean, when we were a kid, we at least would kill each other over a pair of sneakers. Like, <laughs> Jordans are expensive. But, like, straw hats are everywhere. I mean, the whole, like, thing about them is that they're cheap and they're disposable and that... But because people are dumb and decide to cause trouble, that's what you end up with. Straw hat riot. There was a video going around, like, early, early days of the internet. Whenever cell phones first became, like... I mean, now you can't live without them, almost... But cell phones right. were, it was more like a fashion thing than it was a necessity at the time. Yes. And there was this video where there was these two guys that would go dressed up as cell phones. And they would go around grabbing cell phones out of people's hands <laughs> and smashing them on the ground and running away. I'm sure that those two people are dead now. Yeah. I mean, think about that. If you're going to do that today, you'd be one busy dude because every, be one busy yeah, dude, everybody's yeah. got them now. All right, so oh, let's uh, let's get on to the next day, September the 14th, 1981, the debut of television TV show, The People's Court. Dun, dun, dun. Best TV theme song ever. Dun, 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 dun. I think there was actually a yes. comedian that made reference. He goes, imagine being the guy in that band, like just the bass player, like you're, you're going. And just wanting to just like throw in some monster feel like. All right, all right. Hey, hey, dial it back, John Atwistle. <laughs> so, um, yeah, People's Court, uh, hosted by Judge Wapner. Well, Judge Wapner presiding, I should say. Right, it was hosted. The guy that interviewed the people going in and out was a fellow named Doug Llewellyn, who I have no idea what he did before, but I'm going to guess he was probably like a local news guy in some yeah. market and ended up on the syndicated show. Right. Yeah, it was like it was just a small claims court kind of a thing, and people brought their cases on and, you know, for the entertainment of, of millions. It was very popular at the time. Yeah, it was. And, uh, it was surprisingly so. Yeah. I actually know somebody that was on the People's Court. <laughs> yeah. Really? Uh, well, I'm not sure if it was the People's Court. It might have been like one of the many, many, many shows that uh, it spawned. I mean, because, you know, think you got Judge Judy and you got Divorce Court and you get a few other, you know, a bunch of those uh, TV shows. <laughs> there was a parody of it on Arrested Development. Remember that was with Judge Reinhold? Yeah, yeah, Judge Reinhold, yes. Yeah. Judge uh, but anyway, yeah, she was on and she was like suing, I think she sued her like ex-husband for something or whatever. And I guess the way it works is whatever you're suing for, they pay it, whether you win the case or not. That's right. That's like your payment for being on the show. 
Right. And the people who were on the show, they, they have a legal disclaimer for every show that everybody who was on had agreed to re to drop their charges against one another so that they could do this thing in right. the TV courtroom. Right. So, yeah, it was, you know, it's a, it's a little stage, but I mean, it was entertaining and, and whatnot. It, it's lived on. Yeah. Like, this thing was so popular and it, and it was popular with everybody who was like stuck at home in the afternoons. I used to watch it when I was a kid, right. especially if I was homesick. But usually it was on at like, what, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So senior citizens would watch it. Stay-at-home moms would watch it. Kids home from school would watch it. Yep. It was on in every market because it was syndicated. Right. I guess it wasn't sold so much over UHF, but it was in like that weird programming block in the afternoon where even network TV was like, I don't know what to put on here. We're out of soap operas and the game shows don't start for two hours. What do we put on? You know? Yeah. We got a test pattern. You end up with like what, Judge Judy? That's still on, I think. If it's not on now, it's like, I don't think it's been off the air for very long. Right. It was, she was, yeah, she had a very long run. Right. And then it was divorce court. That was on. That's probably, that's been through a couple of different judges and hosts. There's been a couple of other judge shows that have been on. Right. And right now, right now you can watch what is the pinnacle of the judge show evolution. Gary Busey, pet judge. <laughs> Which is to use a pet phrase as part of my pun here. It's cat sh insane. It's 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 the most bizarre and weird and funny and stupid program on TV. And for that, I'm pretty sure aliens will obliterate us all. It almost sounds like they like I thought up something and you thought up something like like almost like a Mad Lib. It's like all right, I got an idea for a show, <laughs> Pet Judge. Right. And then you're like, wait, right. hold on, I'm thinking Gary Busey. <laughs> right. Let's put on a blank, and then under the blank, like in Mad Libs, it says crazy actor. <laughs> like, okay, crazy actor name. It's, oh, Gary Busey. He's nuts. And then pick noun, uh, pet. And then another noun, judge. <laughs> it's very funny. Everybody who's on it looks confused, including the animals. And <laughs> I don't know why it got made, but it's out there, and you can find the, the it. Only, the only person that makes any sense out of it is Gary Busey. <laughs> I swear to God, he must think he's a real judge. That's how wackadoo this show is. It's really, really crazy. All right, moving on to the 15th. What do you got? <laughs> All right. I'm going to preface this briefly because we have to. Okay. So in, in the history of Twibley, we have occasionally run across someone who every time he appears in our history feeds, we have to describe him. Yes, in Paul McCartney. Way. Well, I propose that we also add to the pantheon of greatness our following uh, person. So, September 15th, 1988, <laughs> future Vice President Dan Quayle, <laughs> which is never anything that's going to preface something that follows it that's good. He states, and this is a quote, the Holocaust was an obscene period in our nation's history. No, not our nation's, but in World War II. I mean, we all lived in this century. I didn't live in this century, but in this century's history. <laughs> I spend a lot of my day at work breaking apart sentences that don't make any sense. Right. And no matter how you try and break this sentence apart to make it make any sense, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you couldn't make it make any sense if you had to. It is bananas. It's like <laughs> the dumbest thing you can possibly say um, with regard to the Holocaust or any other uh, major historical event. This been uh, uh, like I think we said this before the show. It would have been great if instead of being George H.W. Bush's vice president, Right. If he was George oh, W.'s God. vice president. So they could just like malapropism ping pong back and forth off of each other. My God, every nation on earth would have invaded us. <laughs> it would have been everybody from like Vanuatu to Azerbaijan. Now's our yeah. chance. Go, go, right. go, get go. Get him, get him, get him. <laughs> would have been like a nationwide version of, uh, I forget that. I can't use the name of that game from when we were kids. We'll get in trouble. Um, tackle the guy with the football. Uh, <laughs> kill uh, the guy with the ball yeah kill the guy with the ball 
I mean, our current president there, our, our your friend of mine there, Joe Biden, he's pretty good for that too, where he'll lose his train of thought. I think it's because his train of thought is powered by some sticks. <laughs> some sticks on fire and a little bit of water, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he'll lose his train of thought, but it's not quite the same level as not realizing that the Holocaust happened when it did and where it did and not being able to uh, articulate that. Yeah, or articulate what century you live in (laughs) or that you live in a century. Like, I've talked my way out of dumb sentences before, but I've always been able to talk my way out of them. (laughs) And I have to remember that Dan Quayle is the person who couldn't spell potato. Oh, you want to hear something funny? Whenever I put up the meme on our page about Dan Quayle not being able to spell potato. Somebody left a comment that, well, that's how it was spelled at one time. I want you to find me any piece of literature that spells potato <laughs> with an E right. at the end with of an it. E on the and end. I will yeah, re- that doesn't use I will retract that doesn't this, use two F's for an yeah. S. Yeah. I will retract this meme and apologize to the world. But no, potato has never been spelled with an E. Stop making excuses. This guy fucked up. Let him have it. It happened. Okay. And don't make excuses for the guy. It happened. Yes. No. You don't. Nobody gets a free pass just because they belong to the political party that you happen to enjoy. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 16th, September the 16th, 1869, is the first recorded hole in one in golf. Wow. So. What you're saying is the least exciting sport in the world has its pinnacle of skill demonstrated for the very first time. Uh, yeah, essentially. So I can reenact this in audio for you. Are you ready? Oh, wow. It went in. <laughs> no, it was probably more like, holy shit. Um, so it, it happened on the eighth hole of the Prestwick Golf Corps. <clears throat> the eighth hole at the Prestwick Golf Club in Scotland. Uh, the guy's name was Young Tom Morris. Like I call you Young Jeff sometimes. Young so Young Tom Morris. It was a 166-yard par three. It was the eighth hole. Uh, 166 yards? Yeah, that's not really that long for a golf hole. But that's why it was only a par three. Okay. But yeah, 166 yards. It's a pretty good shot. And right in the hole. Good for him. I have my hand up, and I'm going to ask a question. Uh, Jeff, yes, you have a question? Well, prior to this hole-in-one being recorded... Yeah. Did golf use holes? The hell you think they use? A, I don't a, know. A, maybe it was chi- closest to the stick. A chicken? Like, <laughs> a, yeah, a headless chicken, right? No, maybe it's just get closest to the stick. And finally somebody's like, hey, you know what would make this easier? All. Oh. Uh, and then the next day, young Angus McCangus, whatever his name is, lands a ball in a hole. And then we have golf. I don't think so. I think there was always holes. It, here's something fun about hole-in-one. My father was an avid golfer. He came home one day. He was like all excited. And he said he got a hole in one that day. What had happened was uh, this particular hole, there was like a small hill behind the hole. He overshot the hole. It went up the hill a little bit and then rolled back down into the hole. My gosh, that's exciting. astronomically. It is. It's. I can hear the crowd roaring from here. Oh, my father was very excited. And he ended up passing away. Like the following spring, so that's always been. I mean, I know you're taking a shit all over golf, and I'm not a golfer myself. As a matter of fact, miniature golf is my most hated freaking pastime in the world. But that was always something kind of like 
because golf was so so special to my father and he enjoyed it so much, I was always really happy that he got to experience that, you know, getting a hold of one before he died. He died young. He was only 59 yeah. years old. Yeah. While I do pick on golf because it's golf, <laughs> you know, I, I won't take that. Away. I'm not going to try and take that away from your father. I, w I will say this. If you want to if you want to watch children go from happy, fun, excited children in one minute <laughs> to furious jerks, miniature golf is your solution. Trust me, because they'll be like, can we go play miniature golf? I want to go play miniature golf. Okay, fine. And then, this sucks. I hate this. Screw this. Ball goes flying that way. Stick goes flying that way. Like, we're on hold two. That's just you. Never mind the kids. And that's just, <laughs> right. It's, I, you guys haven't even hit yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's like, oh, my God, this sucks. There's no shade. There's grit all over the thing. People are coming up behind me. These people are going too damn slow. Everybody's mad. Yeah. I'm going to go on the go-kart. Yeah, there's, there's a good, you know, another, like, two dozen kids that all hate one another, right? Right. Pretty much just beating each other like it's Straw Hat Riot Day <laughs> by the time you get to hole 18. All right, let's get on to the 17th. September 17th, 1983. The Miss America pageant, I guess? Corporation? I don't know what the organization yep. is at, now that I think about it. But Miss America chooses its first black Miss America. And the woman's name who's chosen is Vanessa Williams. Mm -hmm. Not only is she famous for being the first black uh, Miss America, she also became infamous not long after. Because uh, sort of against the creed of the Miss America contest, she had appeared in a modeling magazine. She appeared in Penthouse. Yep. Full on sans clothing. Full Monte, yeah. Um, that was something that ultimately ended up disqualifying her. Now, the pictures were not released until after she was made Miss America. Right. She did some modeling in Europe. Actually, those pictures were taken like out of the country. And then whenever yes. she became Miss America, the photographer in question was sold them to Bob Guccione Jr. Yeah. at Penthouse. And yeah. like if you actually ever seen the pictures, you don't even really see her face and like Yeah, they're Yeah, they I mean, like like her head is like clipped out of most of them. They're very artistic. They're yeah. very pretty. Um and the lighting is very like uh dramatic. Is that the way I want to say it? Right. You know, yeah, they're very artsy pictures. Way, yep. way more artistic integrity than you would normally find in a penthouse magazine. Yeah. Ultimately, though, it was still too much for the image that the Miss America pageant wanted to portray. Mm. So they removed, they made a big deal out of it and stripped her of her crown. Vanessa Williams, for all of this trauma, think Millie Vanilli, like losing their Grammys, and it wasn't long before one of them was, you know. Had, yeah, it took himself out of the game, right? Took himself out of the game. She started making records. She acted in some movies and TV shows. She built a career that was successful and very, very mainstream out of this experience. Here's something. Name another Miss America. I can't. I can't. Right? All I know is Vanessa Williams because she actually went on and made something of herself. Pageant life is like this own little thing. If you're a pageant person, you're a pageant person. My ex-girlfriend's older sister is a former Miss Massachusetts. And I remember watching the pageant on, on TV because, hey, my girlfriend's in the audience. And that's something. Now, her sister was a pageant girl. She was a pageant girl growing up. She did pageants, she did pageants, even though she's way out of that now, she's still very much a part of the pageant, like, life. I, yeah. I, I guess she, like, mentors other girls and stuff like that now. Mm -hmm. yep. Vanessa Williams wasn't like that. She kind of, like, became Miss, I forget which state she was from. I think she was from Georgia. I think she became, like, Miss Georgia, like, by happenstance. Right. Like, whatever. And then she made it to Miss America, and then she won Miss America. But she was never a pageant girl. 
when she won, she was like, okay. And then whenever they, you know, took it away from her, she was like, okay. All right. Yeah. Easy come, easy go. Yeah. yeah. She was not heartbroken at all, you know, to her credit. And then she went on and she had a very successful recording career. She had that number one hit there, Save the Best for Last. Yep. And she was in a bunch of movies. She was in, what's that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Eraser. Yep. She was in Eraser. Yeah. Yep. And even still working now, she was just on the uh, the Keenan show. Yeah. Yep. Much love, Vanessa Williams. Like I said, name another Miss America, because I can't. Right. All right. So going on to the 18th. So on uh, September 18th, 1990, a 500-pound, six-foot Hershey Kiss is displayed at Times Square in New York City. Oh, this started the great giant candy war between New York City and Boston, right? So was it like a year later that, that Boston put up the seven-foot-tall Werther's original in the middle of Boston Common? No, they ended up, uh, Boston famously made the 300-foot diameter Google cluster. <laughs> I wonder what New York's will do next. Yeah. It'll probably be a seven-story tall Cadbury cream egg. Oh, that'd be delicious and gooey as hell. No, Man, no, no, no. 500 pounds of solid chocolate. I can think of worse things to, to get in Times Square. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know if I was if I was this publicity stunt people, I would have waited a little later on in the year. So September 18th, man, you're still in, you know, technically in summer, you know? Yeah. That, that's going to make a mess. I would have waited a little longer. I wonder if they actually cleaned it up or let people just come and just rip a hunk of this chocolate. Uh, I don't know who I don't know who would be carrying a big enough Bowie knife to bring. I'm bringing home a pound of chocolate, honey. Yeah. Chop, stab, stab, stab. A pound of chocolate's a lot of chocolate, yeah. Yes, yes it is. Mmm, delicious Hershey chocolate. And you need 500 of those, yep. And uh, do you know why they're called Hershey Kisses? This feels like a trivia question you should save for another episode of This Week Was Way Better Last Year. I'll give it away. A Hershey kiss. Yeah. All right. So wait, wait, wait. Yeah. No, because well, now I have to guess. Okay. You can't just tell me the okay. answer. Do you know? All right. It's called a Hershey's kiss because call it a Hershey's rim job causes problems with labeling. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the only problem it would have. No, it's called a Hershey kiss because the machine, whenever it deposits the chocolate onto the conveyor belt, looks like it's kissing the conveyor belt. Oh. So as it drops, it goes. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Yep. Yes. Or okay. Yeah. <laughs> his, I don't have a follow up yeah, to that. His, all right, I could talk about chocolate all day long, but matter of fact, I'm going to bring it up in about seven minutes. All right, uh, what do we got for the next thing? What are we, wrapping up the week? What do we got? All right, uh, yes, September nineteenth, nineteen seventy five. A TV show called Faulty Towers it appears on BBC Two in the UK. Now, you may not recognize this. You may be asking yourself, Jeff, why are you bringing up a British TV show that? was only on the air for like 10 episodes and then vanished. It's because it was the first TV show that John Cleese did after Monty Python's Flying Circus ended. Yep. And it still routinely tops the lists of the best sitcoms ever created. I'm actually very familiar with it because uh, my ex-girlfriend used to watch it. on. It was like on PBS. And she used yep. to watch That's it. And she, yeah, she, she, like, she would go on and on and on about it. Yep. It is incredibly funny even still. It's, it's been used in like hotel and restaurant management courses as part of training videos and things. It was remade here in the United States in the early 1980s with B. Arthur uh, taking on the role of Basil Fawlty in a show that did not last a long time called Amanda's. I, 
I don't remember. I don't know if you ever remember seeing that, no. but I remember it was paired with a show called Condo. That's all I remember. And it aired like three times, and then it was gone. No, was, I have no recollection of, of that. There's a history of, of shows that were super popular British shows that came here and were reproduced here, sometimes with even cast members from the original show that didn't do so well. I don't think Amanda's had anybody in it from the original show. They might have had Andrew Sachs, who played Manuel, the guy from Barcelona who Basil Fawlty beat the hell out of every episode right. like there was a show called coupling that was made here and it didn't survive more than a season a pilot for red dwarf which is still running they're still running and creating new episodes of that show it's been around since like 1982 yep. they made episodes of that that didn't go anywhere and the it crowd a really popular show yeah. in in britain they did an american version of that they did yeah joel McHale would have been the the main character oh, yeah. I, and, like and they brought and they brought over richard ayodade who played uh Moss, yeah. oh, right. and he reprises his role as Moss. There's been a few. It, it, ne- it never got past the pilot. Oh, right. You can watch the pilot oh, on YouTube. It's oh, that's why. It, it didn't make it past the pilot. That's why. Um, there's been a few American sitcoms based off British that did well. You know, like Three's yeah. Company, famously. Yep, Three's and Company. whose line is it anyway? Uh, it's not a sitcom, but well, I mean, the, you can criticize it all you want, but the American version did very well. It did. It did yeah. do very well because it had everybody on it from the British version except for the right, host. Exactly. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to mess up that. Yeah, formula. but, uh, no, but I can, I can just the... hear you like, well, the British one's version is better. No, no, no. I don't. I don't think the British one's better. I think that the American one is awesomely funny, and I think that the the different hosts bring something different to the show. Whether it's, geez, I can't remember. Colin something was the host in yeah. Britain, and then Drew Carey. Um, Drew Carey here, and then Aisha Tyler. Right who did a couple seasons here too, all of them are super duper funny and bring something great to the program. Now I got nothing but love for all versions of that And show. then um, Benny Hill was on, you know, British TV on Thames TV. And then yes. HBO picked it up. And then the HBO versions of Benny Hill, they're okay, but they're not the same. You know? Yeah. And same thing with, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Little Britain, a sketch comedy show. Yes. Have you ever seen Little Britain yep. USA? Not as good. There, there are some things that just culturally don't like. They couldn't make an American version of like the Young Ones, the show that we bring they up every tried. other show, right? Yeah, there was an American version of the Young Ones. It was called Oh No, Not Them. It never aired. You know, it didn't even. Oh my! It didn't God. even make it past the pilot. Yeah. Jackie Earl Haley was in it. I don't know who that is. Jackie Earl Haley was like a '70s teen actor, and he, he became much more popular more recently as in as Rorschach in. Oh, that guy. All right. Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah, and he's the terror in the Amazon Prime version of The Tick. He was also the the new Freddy Krueger. Yes. Well, so much for that. Yep. All right, let's get on to the birthdays. Ooh, here we are, back in Chocolateville again. September the 13th, 1857, Milton Hershey, inventor of the Hershey bar. All right. Yeah, yeah, well, he didn't invent chocolate. You know, chocolate had been around for a while. He invented the Hershey bar, I guess... Nobody had thought to put it in a two-by-four square at that point in time. I think he was able to use an emulsifier so that it, it would stay solid at room temperature. I think that's Hershey's big contribution to chocolate, oh. is that he made it so that it was shelf-stable above 70 degrees. Yeah, I wonder what they emulsified that big Hershey kiss in New York City with. <laughs> it must have, there's a lot of soy, I think it's soy light thin, that's the... Uh, the emulsifier that's in it. But yeah, there's a ton of Imagine it. you're bringing home the block of chocolate from New York City. It's good. It's just really em- emulsifiery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm covered in chocolate. I'm covered in emulsifiery. <laughs> 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 
All right, next up. September 14th, 1983, British sort of new new soul singer, I guess is what you call it, a- Amy Winehouse. Ooh, she just made 10 uh, years sober this year. <laughs> that's that's a tough yep, one. No, oh, cheap shot, I took it. That's yep. a tough one. Cheap shot. It was like, well, sometimes, you know what? If you can land it, you should yep. throw it. Low-hanging um, fruit. Pull, the, low hanging fruit. pull that that's, sucker right uh, off the tree, yeah. Yes. She was certainly the of that sort of short-lived, I don't want to call it a fad, but sort of musical trend of pr- British women who sort of sound like they have come from the 1960s Motown tradition into pop music and incorporate a lot of soul and jazz and funk in the stuff that they are producing or, or singing along with. She was the one who, who had the most critical acclaim and went the furthest with her career. Others like Duffy and, you know, my one of my favorites, Kate Nash and... And, and others didn't have the same sort of critical reception and longevity as she did. And unfortunately, she was a, a sort of a victim of her own success. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, she is so more remembered for just being a mess. Uh, and, I mean, she spelled it right out. She had a song called okay. Rehab. You know, they tried to make me go to rehab. I said, no, 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 no. It's like, well, if that's what you want to be known for, you know, right. uh, to the point where you're so over there telling me that she was part, uh, you know, a British singer. I had no idea. All I knew is that yep. she was a mess. Like for what they used to call blue-eyed soul, which was like in the, the late '60s, was like white guys who sounded like Motown. Yep. It's almost like blue-eyed soul, but it was really popular in the early 2000s. And she's also a member of the 27 Club. Yeah. Uh, I, I would, you know, I mean, we're, we're poking a lot of fun, but that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. It's too, it's too bad that she couldn't get her shit together to enjoy a nice, long, and, and amazing career. I, Who knows what she could have done? Right. I will say her records, amongst all of the those in that musical trend, her records hold up best. So moving on to the 15th, a man by the name of, I hope I'm saying this right, Keir Lamont Gist, who you would know better as KG from the late 80s and early 90s hip-hop band Naughty by Nature. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. They're down with OPP. They are down with OPP, and they, uh, they also had the other... Uh, amazing song, uh, single, Hip Hop Hooray. Remember that one? Yes, I do. You know, I do indeed. I, I do the, the windshield wiper every time I hear that song. I, everybody does. not very often. Everybody does. You can just walk into a room and just go, Hip Hop Hooray! Oh! And everybody will start doing the windshield wipers. Yeah. Yes. They had about five or six albums. Their most recent one was, looks like 2011, probably, you know, so like 10 years ago. KG has been very busy as a producer. He's produced things all, you know, all along from Run DMC's Down with the King album straight up to more recently uh, Belbiv DeVoe who put out an album in 2017. He was a pro- wow. Yeah, he was a producer on that. Yeah, he's also worked with Queen Latifah, Will Smith, and even Luther Vandross. So yeah, it's a, oh, there you go. I liked what I know from Naughty by Nature. I don't know a lot, but what I know I like. All right, so moving on to the 16th. September 16th, 1971. SNL writer and character actress Amy Poehler is born. Very funny woman. Born in Newton, Mass. So go figure. She's another mass hole. Her big break was writing for Saturday Night Live, and she parlayed that into a movie career in stuff like Blades of Glory. I don't want to say second banana parts because they're not. She's good in everything that she's in, but she generally isn't the main character. Right. Also was the main character on the show Parks and Recreation. Yep. She was the cool hip mom in Mean Girls. And uh, yeah, and she did a lot of work side by side with like I'm gonna guess her best friend uh, Tina Fey, who wrote the script for the Mean Girls. So there's a little bit of nepotism in there. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And she did a couple movies with Will Ferrell. So she was like I said, she was in Blaze of Glory. Yep. And she was in like The House Wins, or I can't remember the name of the film, 
where she and Will Ferrell were married and turned their house into a casino. I'll have to look that up. I, uh, I'm not usually a fan of Will Ferrell, but that premise sounds pretty good. I, I wasn't either until I watched Blades of Glory. All right, so going on to the 17th, 1951, American comedian, I guess you will say, Cassandra Peterson, known more over the world over as Elvira, the Mistress of the Dark. She was one of the groundlings, right? The improv guys out of California? Yes, uh, I was just about to say that. Her, Pee Wee Herman, I can't remember the actress's name, but she later on became Mrs. Poole, and she was also the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that woman. And the guy who passed away earlier this year, John Paragon, Paragon. Uh, who you would know as Jombie from the Pee Wee's. Yeah, they all, uh, they all came up together in an improv group, yeah. And she, she's most often known as being like the voluptuous, vampiric TV show host of a late night monster movie show. Yes. Even though that's that became like a nationwide thing and I'd never been able to see Elvira's TV show until like the movie came out and right. it started to, to filter out in syndication out of California, but I guess it was humongous on the West Coast. Yeah, they, she used to guest host um, for a few Halloweens. She used to guest host on MTV. Uh, she was like a guest video DJ. The gal with the set you won't soon forget, and I'm not talking about a zenith. <laughs> the girl on the tube that has the big ratings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's her, yes. Uh, apparently, whenever she was just about two years old, there was a, uh, a kitchen accident, and she had, like, burns and scalding, you know, scalding scars on, like, a good third of her body and the kids in school actually used to tease her for it and apparently the Elvira dress is cut in such a fashion that it hides all of that she says I only show off the good bits huh, cool alright moving on to the 18th uh, September 18th 1975 another Saturday Night Live alum uh, comic actor Jason Sudeikis he was in Horrible Bosses and uh, he was in Colossal he was friggin awesome in Colossal yeah. by the way bring up Will Farrell. he was in the movie Campaign He's out there. I think, Bill, like your favorite movie in the whole wide world, he's in. He's in as well. <laughs> he's. It's, it's not my favorite movie in the whole wide world. It's a horrible movie that I recommend the people to watch because as bad as the movie is, it's freaking hilarious. Uh, it's a movie called Movie 43, which is just a bunch of like sketches that would never be able to air on television because they're too filthy. Ah. And he plays Batman in a superhero speed dating skit. I, I will say this briefly, like if you want to make a good drama movie, like hire a comedian. For some reason, they're able to do it well yep. and see also colossal. So. And wrapping up the birthdays, September the 19th, 1940, songwriter extraordinaire and part-time actor too, Paul Williams. Yeah, we're going back. Sure. He's he's a, he's an older dude, so I mean, we're yeah, going back. He was a, he was a, he was a fixture on like seventies late night TV when I was a kid. Yeah, and, and like know, he got interviewed nine million times. I think, yeah, and he would, he would ultimately be like a square on the Hollywood squares and stuff like right. that. Uh, he was in the Smoking the Bandit movies, and he was also in the movie The Phantom of the Paradise, so by right. made by Brian De Palma, who we just brought up last week. Yep, yep, yeah, and he wrote the music for that. He wrote all of the songs, or at least the majority of the songs, for the Muppet movies, like Moving Right Along and Can You Picture That from the Muppet movie. You know those songs. Em yep. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Everybody loves that. He wrote some stuff for that. He did a bunch of the music for the kids' gangster movie directed by Robert Altman called Bugsy Malone that I watched 47,000 times on cable right. as a teenager. And even most recently, the Daft Punk album Random Access Memories 
Uh, he had his hand in that. He he co-wrote a few of the songs and even did vocals on one of the uh, one of the tracks. Yeah, yeah, active. You know, pretty active even up until fairly recently. Anyway, I think. Well, that album came out in 2013, so I mean, even active until relatively recently. Yeah. There's a documentary about him that's relatively recent too. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'd say about the same amount of time. I think it came out. Yeah. I think it came out about the same time as Random Access Memories. Um, yeah. yeah, he was a, another one of those messes. Lot, lots of yep. lots of drugs and alcohol. Um, but one thing about Paul Williams, he seems to be incapable of penning. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff. I gotta. I'm gonna take over the nomination duties for this week's worst song ever. I've got a doozy for you. Okay. All right. Bring it on. Uh, this is a song called "Run, Joey, Run" by David Geddes. <laughs> you know the song. Yeah, <laughs> uh, crawling from the swamp of early 1970s soft rock. It's yeah. This bleh. It's uh, like, yeah, this (laughs) Run Joey Run is one of these story songs that we we tend to bring up from time to time. And it also falls into another category. As I was doing my research, I was laughing about it. I didn't realize this was like a category for popular music, but it is, is the teenage tragedy song. It's its own genre. There's, there's bound to be some K-Tel album that just track after track of these people dying, these you know, young kids yeah. dying. The kind of songs I'm talking about. We brought up one a couple of months ago, Tell Laura I Love Her. That, yes. That's a teenage tragedy song. I'm mo- probably the most famous one is Leader of the Pack. And, yes. and then this song, Run, Joey, Run. Before we get too much fr- further along, let's just play the clip. And let me tell you, Playing this clip is a work of art for me because when it comes to playing clips, we try to keep them around 30 seconds. Trying to pick out the worst 30 seconds of this song is tough. It was yeah. <laughs> it was a judgment call because the whole song is just trash from beginning to end. It's it is not good. All right, so here's here's the 30 seconds I decided on. Seen him act this way. My God, he's going crazy. He says he's gonna make you pay for what we've done. He's got a gun, so run, Joey, run, Joey, run. Daddy, please don't. It wasn't his fault. He means so much to me. Daddy, please don't. We're gonna get married. Just you wait and see. All right, so... The, the gist of this song is it starts off with that girl, that girl that you hear singing there, saying, Daddy, please don't. It wasn't his fault. He means so much to me. Uh, we're going to get married just so you wait and see, blah, blah, blah. So apparently this young girl in the song has become pregnant and Joey's the one who, yep. Joey's the one who did it. And dad is pissed off about it and he's got a gun. And he's coming after Joey for knocking up his daughter. He's going to get him, yeah. yep. Listen, I'm not a biology major, but if she's pregnant, he's at least 50% at fault here. <laughs> she doesn't have a lot of argument over there. Also, another problem I have with this song, if her father's going cuckoo bananas with a gun, don't call Joey. Call the police. Well, and worse, <laughs> don't stand in front of Joey because she's the one who takes the slug. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. She she goes. She's the one who goes down at the end of the song. It's her last words as she's bleeding out of Joey's arms are run, Joey, run. No, 
No, no, no. Yeah. No, no, no. It's bad. All this is bad. Run, Joey, run. And if you hit a payphone, call an ambulance, would you? Yeah. Jeez Louise. Yeah. The father shoots at Joey and she jumps in front of the bullet. Good for her. Take one for the team, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's like, it's as subtle as a tub fart. <laughs> That's what this song is like. It's, it's... It's just bad. It's bad on all the ways. It's like, I don't even know if it's terrible on purpose. The production of it is astonishingly bad. Yeah, the girl Whoever sounds mixed like... mixed in the girl's voice, it sounds like somebody beating Cindy Brady with a golf club. Yeah, she doesn't it's sound like she's a awful. singer. No. No, she doesn't. She sounds like she's a hysterical homeless person pulled in off the street to just, here, read these and I'll give you a Hershey bar. She sounds um, like the girls that go up and try to sing What's Up. A karaoke. <laughs> that's what she sounds ah, like. Smells like laundry in here. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. So yes. David Geddes has an interesting story. He was in a band. Uh, he played drums and did vocals for a, you know a, a couple of local bands. And they never went anywhere outside of like, you know, a couple of songs on local radio stations. So he quit that and he went to college and he was studying to be a lawyer. And then a friend of his had written this song for Run, Joey, Run, and he remembered David Geddes from that band that he was in. He was like, oh, yeah. he's got the perfect voice for this. So he calls him up, brings him in. Uh, he does the, the the vocals. Now, this song made it all the way to n- number four. David Geddes quit college with one semester left to go before graduation to, yeah. to rejoin the music industry. It's hedging your bets right there in the worst way. Yeah, the fact that you don't know who the hell David Geddes is tells a great story of how well that decision made for him. Right. I hope he went back to college. <laughs> right. Maybe he ended up like an A&R man for a record company or something, and they're like, this guy can't sing, and he doesn't write anything, but he keeps hanging around. Yep. Now, So, I don't know. Go find other bands. Apparently, there was a television show made called Run, Joey, Run, which I don't know how much longer you could drag the story out. Two, two and a half minutes seems to be a little too long for me. <laughs> yes, I agree. Two minutes and 52 seconds is way too much time for the plot of this song, yes. Yep. He did have a follow-up single, which is arguably worse. Yeah. It's called The Last Game of the Season, parentheses, A Blind Man in the Bleachers. And it tells a story about this father who goes to every football game that his son is in, but his son kind of like sucks rocks at, at football and never gets put in the game. But the father's there watching, not watching because he can't watch, he's blind, uh, every game. It's like this whole tragedy genre, which when I was looking it up, there was one of the nicknames they had for it was Splatter Platter, which is amazing that is a great name (laughs) i don't know why i guess in the 70s there was a market for i don't know maybe people just like were just feeling so bad for themselves they wanted to hear like people who had it worse it's like well my life ain't so bad is it again this is the heyday of soft rock right where the music industry doesn't know what the hell it's supposed to do because the audience is so mixed up and strange and they can't put a 47 minute yes song that's 39 percent keyboard solo out on fm radio <laughs> so what are they going to do that's where the people like david gettys and and you know birthday boy paul williams fall in yeah. these guys are good enough looking that you can throw them on a variety show because there's a million variety shows on and be like <laughs> here look it's the number one song in the united states is run joey run here's david gettys and some girl 
singing, <laughs> please don't kill him, daddy, you are going to get married, or whatever. And as that demographic aged out and stopped listening to the radio and, and watching anything that wasn't like Murder, She Wrote, these guys all vanished. You're also talking about a generation that famously suspended tuna fish in, in green jello and ate it for supper. Yes, 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 they did. I know yes, I reference did. it a lot, but why not? It's terrible. Yes. All right, but that is going to be the end of the show, but we don't end our show until we torture Jeff. Oh, man. With our trivia question. We're on a roll, Jeff. You have three. Can we make it for four? I'm going to try. What was the first original television scripted series on HBO? All right. I've, I've gone back mentally a million times to think about this, and... Since you proposed this question to me, and, and I'm not the kind of person that goes and looks things up, unless it's not for trivia question purposes, at least. Okay. As we clarified at the beginning of the show, it's not like one of the Canadian imports like The Hitchhiker, which was my first thought. Right. Hitchhiker or not necessarily the news because those were imports from Canadian broadcasting. Right. I think this is a weird enough one that it might be oh. Fraggle Rock. Ding, ding, ding. Number Did four. I get another one? Yep. It was Fraggle Rock. Holy Fraggle shit. Rock. And Dance your kids away. So, Worries for so here's, another day. Here's, here's yep. why I thought of that today is because yep. of the connection to Paul Williams and the Muppet movie songs. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Fraggle Rock was pretty early in HBO's uh, relationship with me as a kid. So, okay, Oh, my God. If going? I didn't pick Paul Williams, you never would have guessed it. I would have never got it. Yeah, I would have I I ended up probably guessing. Like My next one, and I think I had the wrong channel, would have been bizarre with john biner that was on showtime and i think you could actually go and double check that i think bizarre was a canadian show as well i I think i think it was too because john biner was a canadian actor four in a row can we get five next week we shall see you're gonna have to come back next week fair listener to find out that will be in seven days that is a wrap for this show say good night jeff good night jeff bye guys Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Don't forget to tell all your friends about our podcast. Tell them it's like Shark Week, but for like more weeks and less sharks. <laughs>